morning. Happy almost July 4th. Hope you're excited to uh, eat some hot dogs and blow some stuff up. So uh, I always enjoy it. So uh, we, as elders, uh, made a decision, I don't know, two, three weeks ago to kind of shift the preaching calendar around for some things that we thought would be good for the church and uh, kind of where the Lord's leading us. But that created a hole for this Sunday. And so last Friday, Sean asked me if I would preach this Sunday on prayer. Uh, and I was like, uh, I guess so. So normally Sean is very gracious. He gives me two or three months. He gives me the exact verse I'm going to preach. Uh, this wasn't really his fault. It's just kind of a scheduling thing. But uh, it fell to, to me. And, and, I didn't and I didn't have a passage because we're doing this topical series on prayer. So uh, I was a little nervous, but the Lord is very gracious in my time preparing Told Sean, you know, normally use more time. Don't know that I'm the best person to be preaching on prayer, but this would be an example today of God using a weak vessel. So uh, pray with me, and then, uh, and then we'll get started. I'm going to pray part of Psalm 33. Jesus, we come to you right now, and we just want to shout for joy in the Lord. We want to give you praise, Lord, that, that befits you. We want to give thanks to you, Lord, and make melody. We want to sing to you a new song and play skillfully and shout. For your word is upright, and your word, all of your work is done in faithfulness. You love righteousness and justice. The earth is full of your steadfast love, O Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of your mouth, all their host. So we come to you, I come to you this morning, Lord, as um, someone who is weak and, and not uh, befit to, to preach on approaching you with boldness and confidence, but knowing that um, it's not up to me and my work, that your salvation, the gospel, has accomplished it. And has made it available to all of us. So I pray, Lord, that this morning you would help me to only desire your glory. I pray that you would free us from any distractions. And I pray, Lord, that we would cling to your truth. So be with us now. And I just thank you for your kindness that we have Bibles to read, that we can call out to you in prayer, that we can gather together as a local church and encourage each other. I thank you, Lord. That we live by faith, but you are kind, and in your kindness you have left us some tangible reminders. So I pray we would be encouraged right now. In your name, amen. So yeah, not only did Sean ask me to preach on prayer, he asked me to preach on approaching God with boldness and confidence. Um, which, uh, I don't know, made me a little uncomfortable at the time. But, as I mentioned, God is faithful. So when you think about having to ask somebody in this life for something bold, uh, when do you have the most trouble with that? When do you feel the most insecure to go before somebody and ask for something for them in boldness? Maybe if you're younger, there's some kids here, maybe if you're younger and you're a student and you have to go to the principal's office, that's not a time where you feel like you can be very bold. You can, you can really ask for what you need for because you're afraid of what he or she can do to you. If you're an adult, maybe it's a leader at work. 
Maybe it's your boss or your boss's boss or an executive. That anytime you have to go talk to him or her, you don't feel like you can go with boldness. In fact, you have to kind of dig down and emotionally prepare yourself to be able to go in there and talk at all. If you're a college student, there's some college students here, maybe you feel insecure to go talk to your professor. Maybe you see somebody like Ron Jour and it makes you start to sweat, cold sweat. Or you see the dean at the college and you think, uh, I, I, I can't approach him or her. If you are a survivor of trauma, it might be the parent or the friend or the former spouse or former boyfriend or girlfriend that when you, when you think about having to interact with that person, it makes your, your blood run cold. Maybe if you were meeting with a high-ranking official like the governor or the president, you would, be, you would be timid and you would be shy and it would be hard for you to be bold. Maybe if you're in sales and you're ask, you've got a deal, you've been working and nursing for months, and this will make your year, but you're scared to push too hard because you don't want it to break and fall apart. Maybe if you live in an apartment and, and something's broken, your toilet needs to be fixed, but your landlord is really gruff and unkind every time you have to interact, and so you're, you're scared to go boldly and ask for what's rightfully yours as, as the landlord to have, have your toilet fixed so you can live there and enjoy it. Uh, maybe you've been thinking about a girl for two years and you've been consumed with her and you finally get the courage to ask her out to coffee and your voice is just barely a whisper when you get it out because you don't have the boldness to go in there. You don't feel like you have the swagger to go in there and she's going to say yes. So why do you struggle in these situations to go in and be bold? Is it because of the power dynamic? Because you, you perceive they have power and you don't? Do you fear a loss of reputation? What happens if you ask her to coffee and she says no and then tells everybody why? Do you fear retribution from other people? Do you fear to ask for something be, or, or bring something up because they may, they may use it against you? Does the, poverty disparity, does the power disparity make you uncomfortable? Or do you fear that you might have a relationship that you actually lose? So, let's turn it around. What are the situations where you know you can walk in? That you have this swag and they're going to say yes. And so you go in and you go in boldly. Maybe if you're a kid, it's your parents. Maybe if you're parents, it's your kids. Um, if you have a job and you really want to raise, and you get another job offer with a much higher salary, maybe you can go in pretty bold and slam it on your boss's desk and demand a raise in that situation and not worry about the ramifications. Maybe if you've been told ahead of time, hey, this person's on your side, they want to help you out. Maybe then you can go in boldly and ask for what it is that you want. Maybe you're going to ask for something so outlandish you expect to know, so you go in with a lot of swagger anyway. Uh, maybe at your job, there's somebody you know who's a pushover that can never say no. And so that project you don't really want to do, you're going to slough it off on him because you know he won't be able to say no because he won't want to disappoint you. Maybe you don't really care about the outcome. Maybe you're going to ask something and you don't really care what the answer is. So you can go in boldly and ask for what it is. Or maybe you're not asking in person. 
A lot of people can ask and say things boldly in an email or a text or on social media. But when you're in person, it's a different story. So why in those situations do you feel like you can go in with boldness? Do you feel like you now have the power disparity, that it's tilted in your favor? Do you feel like you have nothing to lose, so you don't really care? Do you feel like the person will love you no matter what? And so that's why you can go to them with boldness, because you know that they're going to accept you, and they'll continue the relationship. Or maybe you don't care about the other person, you're only thinking about yourself. And when you think about somebody asking boldly, what do you picture? Right? A lot of people watch TV, watch movies. Maybe when you think about somebody coming in and asking boldly, you picture kind of a, like a broad-chested, deep-voiced, bearded guy coming in and commanding his respect that's going to get a response, right? Or maybe you picture somebody who's really smooth-talking and they have like a golden tongue and they, you know they're going to always know the right things to say to push the buttons to get it done, right? Or maybe you picture someone in authority. So they're bold because they know people have to do what they say. I think it's helpful It's helpful for me to think through all of these various situations and why sometimes we feel timid, why sometimes we feel bold. Sometimes it's good reasons, like we know the person's going to love us no matter what. Sometimes it's bad reasons, like we know we're the one in power and people have to do what we say. Um, so I think it's helpful to think through us in a fallen world. But what about when we go to God? What about when we go to the creator of the universe? When we go to him in brokenness, how, should we, how can we go in boldness and confidence? Well, I want to look at four passages that I think will help us. So we're going to look at passages from Galatians 4. So be ready. Just like have your phone up. Be ready to scroll. Or if you've got your Bible, you got a physical Bible, be ready to flip. Uh, we're not going to be in one spot today. So I want us to see that we can go to God with confidence and we can ask him boldly because we're accepted by God and adopted into his family. So we're sealed. We're, we're permanently part of him. Our Savior can sympathize with us in every way. So we're going to look at Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. And we're going to see that he's willing to hear us. God grants us access to himself. We're going to look at Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Two places in Hebrews. Hebrews is probably my favorite book in the whole Bible. I know for a lot of people it's Ephesians or Romans or Psalms, but the Lord has used Hebrews in my life probably uh, as much or more than any other book to help bring me along. And then finally we're going to look at not only is he grant us access, that's important, but can he do anything about it? He has the power to change hearts circumstances and desires and we're going to look at Job 38 which is a section where Job's just gone through a terrible time in his life a very hard time and then he has these terrible friends that show up and kind of heap insults on him in his hard time and then God shows up and rebukes everyone and this is a Job 38 is part of the section where God is rebuking Job and reminding Job of how powerful he is and who he is so we're going to look at those. So go to Galatians 4. Uh, if you're newer to the Bible, that's kind of near the end of the Bible. Um, so we're going to go to Galatians 4, chapters 3 through 7, or sorry, chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. So this is what it says. This is Paul speaking to the church in Galatia. So he said, in the same way, and essentially point one is the gospel. 
So we want to make sure we understand the gospel, who we are in God. That's why we can even go to him. So this is, this is a good summary here. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, that means children born into uh, the world before we were regenerated. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We were enslaved to sin, the ways of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so born the same way we were born, under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that's us, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, or sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That term, Abba, is a term meaning affection. Uh, we don't have a great translation for it in English, but it's kind of like daddy, but it, it means more than that. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, what does that mean? You're an heir of God. You have become part of God's eternal kingdom. So the first thing we need to remember when we're going to go to God is we've been, why do we even get to go to him? Because we're adopted into his family. We're accepted by God. So we're now his children because of the work of Jesus. So Jesus fulfilled the plan that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit had made from the beginning of time to open up salvation for anyone who believes and confesses in Jesus. So we're all born under the law. We're all born under this this hopeless scenario where we would have to be perfect in every single thought, every single motive, every single action for every single second of our lives to get to God. If you've been alive at any time at all, you realize how hopeless that is. If you've read anything about human history, you realize how depraved and hopeless that we are. So Jesus comes into the same circumstance that we're born into, but he has the power to overcome it. And so what God does is he takes Jesus' righteousness and he transfers it to us, or he imputes it to us. That's not a word that we use a lot, but basically he credits it to us. It would be like if I was buying a car and I did not have $10,000, but you had $10,000 and you transferred it to my account so that I could go to the dealership and buy the car or go online or wherever and buy it. So Jesus' righteousness is transferred to us. And so God now can look at us and accept us as perfectly adopted sons and daughters because of the work of what Jesus did. So basically, God has come to your grave. He has dug up your grave, opened the coffin, pulled your dead body out, breathed life into you, and then he's brought you into his house, set you at his table where there'll be feasting for eternity. So this is why we have access to God. It's not because of anything that we did. And there's no other religion with this message for its followers. Every other religion you have to work. Christianity is the only one where God does all the work, takes all of his work, and then credits it to us. So we should be full of hope. Um, Now, not only does God save us, but he brings us into his family. Now for... For some of you, you had a good family growing up. You have good memories of family vacations, family dinners, getting instruction from your parents, getting help with homework. But for some of us, that's not the family that we remember. 
So we have to be careful when we go to the Scripture that we don't import those thoughts about family onto who God is. We need to go to the Scripture and we need to spend time in the Scripture to make sure we, we understand God's description of who He says He is and what it means to be a part of His family. So you may have grown up in a family where uh, there was abuse. That's not how God treats His children. You may have grown up in a family where you were abandoned. God comes to you in your abandonment and says, I love you, and he brings you into his family. You may have grown up in a family that valued high achievement, and that's how you were accepted and celebrated is when you achieved high levels of things. God comes and says, you don't have to achieve anything. In fact, you can't achieve anything. I've achieved it, and I'm going to let you join in the celebration of what I've achieved. So that's how he comes to us. He's very warm. He's very um, understanding. And so you can come as a kid, comes, should come to their parent. You can come with joy. You can come with love. You can come with enthusiasm. You can come with hope. It doesn't matter how many times I say I'm not going to the pool, that I still get asked, can we go to the pool, especially on days like today when it's hot. Why? Because they know that I love them. In worst case scenario, I say no. And sometimes, like yesterday, I go to the pool. And then we have a good time in the pool and hopefully nobody gets sunburned. So when we come to God, there's a dependence and a warmth that's offered through God. And so we need to remember that. That's why he's adopted us into his family. He didn't adopt us into his family to be distant and cold. He adopted us so that we would join in the celebration with him. He's the creator of love and affection, and he's given you unfettered access to himself. So that's number one. We need to remember that we're part of his family. We're adopted in as sons and daughters. Number two, if you want to flip to Hebrews, it's a little past Galatians. We're going to go to chapter four, um, verses 14 to 16. And we need to remember that we have a savior. We have a God who can sympathize with us in every way. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Picking up in verse 14. Hopefully you've had time to scroll there, flip there. Since then we have a great high priest, it's talking of Jesus, who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's a few things I want to point out from this passage. One is that we need to cling to Jesus. That's the first one. Now, uh, about a month ago, a little more than that, Katie Beth, my oldest, and I went to Carowinds. I hadn't been to a theme park since like early to mid-20s. So body works a little bit differently now. But we went, and uh, they have a lot of big, fast roller coasters there. And we rode them all, and we rode a lot of them multiple times. And so we went, we dropped, we went forward, we went backward, we went upside down, we did the loops, we turned every direction, uh, we did it all. And on the really big roller coasters, they take your picture. And then when you walk out, you walk through this area where they have all these screens with everybody's picture. And so that's one of the best parts of the ride, honestly, because 
Uh, I don't know if this is a new phenomenon. I don't remember anybody when I went to theme parks passing out. They're, the roller coasters are probably faster now, but it seemed like half the people passed out. It wasn't that many, but you would see pictures of some people like just over, totally limp. A lot of people in the group we were with passed out. One guy passed out so hard, the guy next to him was slapping him as hard as he could on the chest, just trying to get him awake. But you, when you go through, you see some people have their arms up, and they're yelling, and they're laughing. Some people are passed out, but some people are white-knuckling, and they have a look of sheer terror on their face. And the look on their face says, if I let go of this roller coaster, I am going to die, okay? This is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. When it says, let us hold fast to our confession, he is saying, cling to Jesus as if you think you are going to die. Because without him, you will die. Not just a physical death, but an eternal death. So that's the first thing, is we need to cling to Jesus. The second thing is, he says, uh, if you go to verse uh, 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are tempted. So what does that mean? That means that there is no reason to ever worry that Jesus will be shocked or jaw-dropped by what you're going through or struggling with. There is no reason to ever be concerned that he's going to, you're going to come in and you're going to dump your stuff on him and he's going to say, uh, I haven't seen this one before. This is not what I was expecting. Uh, I'm going to need a minute. Let me search Reddit, see if I can find something. Maybe it gives me an idea of what you're talking about here. That's not how Jesus works. He's not only seen everything, he's experienced the temptation from everything. So there's no dangling carrot of sin that's ever going to come in front of you that Jesus himself has not seen or has not had to resist. And then the second thing that's really important, he says, in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus is the only one to ever be tempted in every way possible, yet without sin. This is really important because he understands what it takes to get through the other side of the temptation with righteousness. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever read about uh, or know anything about extreme sports. And I'm not talking like marathons. I'm talking like extreme, way out there, crazy stuff. I don't know why people do it kind of thing. So, uh, like, for example, one is a 100-mile ultramarathon. It takes, like, 24 hours to run this race, right? Uh, there, I read a story a couple weeks ago about a guy who holds the Guinness Book of World Records for most amount of pull-ups in 24 hours, okay? This is a, so this is a chin-up. This is a pull-up. So your arms are facing out. It's a lot of forearm. A lot of back. This guy did 7,715 pull-ups in 24 hours. I bet we could add up all the pull-ups we have done in this room in our lifetime, and it's probably less than 7,715. I don't have a lot to contribute. I'm guessing a lot of you others don't either. 24 hours, this guy did 7,715 pull-ups. There's a guy, an Australian guy, just set the record for longest time holding a plank. Nine hours, 30 minutes, and one second holding a plank. I don't know if you've ever done a plank, 
do a plank for 60 seconds. By about 40 seconds in, you'll be begging for a break. This guy held a plank for nine and a half hours. I guess, I don't know if you had a catheter in or what. I don't mean, maybe you're sweating so bad. I can't imagine nine and a half hours of holding a plank. Now, these people are extreme, and they're the ones you want to talk to if you're going to try to tackle something. So if you're thinking you want to get into ultra marathon, you don't want to talk to the guy that ran the ultra marathon and dropped out at mile 33. I mean, I guess if you want to drop out at mile 33, you'll talk to that guy. But if you want to run, figure out how to finish a 24-hour, 100-mile race, you want to talk to somebody that's finished it. You want to talk to somebody that can tell you what to do when your mental faculties start to go. When you do these extreme races, sometimes people literally start to lose their mind. They forget who they are, or they forget periods of time in the race. It's crazy because, you know, levels get so low. So that's the person you want to talk to to tell you what to do when you start to lose your mental faculties. That's the person you want to talk to to tell you how many calories you need to make sure you're consuming every hour so your body can keep going. That's also the person you want to talk to that can tell you how to take care of your feet so they hold up through the race. That's a big problem for people. So you want to talk to somebody who has gone through it and come out the other side. You don't want to talk to the person who gave it a shot and quit halfway in. This is what Jesus is. Oftentimes, I think we're tempted to go to him because we think we're going to shock him. He's not going to understand or he's not going to be able to help us. He's the only one that can help us. He's the only one that was tempted by lust and didn't give in and defile his body. He's the only one that ever went to a feast and didn't overeat again and leave feeling sick. He's the only one who ever had power and didn't use it to abuse people. He's the only one who didn't listen to the lies of the enemy that were telling him to harm himself. He's the only one who didn't struggle with body image and wish that things about him were different. He's the only one who didn't look at other people in different social and economic statuses and envy them. Jesus is the only one who's faced every temptation that's possible to us and was able to resist and honor God. He's the only one with the strength and the experience to help us know how to conquer it and come through it. So we've got to go to him because he can strengthen us. He can comfort us. He gives us access to him. So don't think he'll ever reject you because what you did was too bad. He understands and he's there to reach down in your low moments and pull you through. There's a book, Gentle and Lowly, that the whole book talks about how Jesus comes to us when we're low. That's how he's geared to meet us. So we need to call out to him. I think Pastor Sean did a great job last week talking about how we are helpless but not hopeless. We are helpless. The reason we're not hopeless is because we have a high priest, we have a savior who knows how to come through every situation and come out on the other side righteous. So go to him and let him pull you up. Don't try to pull yourself up. It will never work. So we have a Savior. We've been adopted in, by God into his family. We've been made his sons and daughters. We have a high priest. We have a Savior who can sympathize with us in every way and who knows how to come through every situation. And he's given us access to himself. So flip over to Hebrews 10. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Hebrews 10. And we're going to pick up in verse 
19. Uh, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by, or brothers and sisters, uh, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, through his sacrifice, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, how do we know he's great? Because he can sympathize with us in every way and he can help us. Let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So this idea of access may sound, especially if you've grown up in the South and you've been around Christian culture, may sound like second nature. In this time, in the ancient world, Access to God was not anything that anybody took for granted. doesn't matter their religion. If you were a pagan, Greek, or Roman, you would go, uh, you would go to uh, the temples and you would offer. Um, I read a book uh, earlier this year about Alexander the Great, who conquered most of uh, the Middle East, even into India, conquered this huge expanse of the world in, in like 12 years. It was amazing. But he would often go, after these great victories, to whatever temple was near, and he would offer a big sacrifice to these fake gods. And so um, there wasn't a, a sense of kind of direct access. So we take it for granted, but at the time that Hebrews in the New Testament was written, this is a pretty novel idea, because the only person who could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest. That was the only person who really got to go into the presence of God before Jesus opened a way for all of us. And so God allows us into his presence. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy place. We can come into the holy place. That's where God is. Uh, verse 22 says, uh, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We have full assurance when we come to God. If you go back to uh, Hebrews 4, um, 16, where we were, it said, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So we can come to the holy place where God dwells with confidence. Now, people sometimes have access to power, but they don't always have the confidence. If you read the book of Esther, um, which, you know, you'll see Esther had access to the king. She was the queen. She could go into the throne room of the king. But if the king didn't like it or didn't want her there, he could kill her. So she had access to the king. But it wasn't unconditional. It wasn't certainly any, with any kind of security to be able to go. But that's not the kind of access that we have to the triune God, the real God who's over the whole universe and the whole world. We don't have to worry about the access with him. You don't have to worry that you're standing in line behind a velvet rope and you're going to get up there and somebody's going to say you're not on the list. You're on the list. Jesus put you on the list. You have access to God because of Jesus' work. Again, no other religions teach this. They all teach you have, to, you have to do works to earn your way to get to God. But you have access because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus. And because of who God is, you don't have to worry about going and he's on vacation. You don't have to worry about showing up and he's in a bad mood. You don't have to worry about waking him up, showing up when he's asleep and, and getting him up. Uh, you don't have to worry about him being exasperated with you coming again and again and again. That's not who God is. He's there ready to commune with us 
at all times. And I don't want us to overlook this access because, again, I think it can be easy sometimes in our culture if you've been exposed to it for a long time. Uh, if you think about just being a citizen of North Carolina, the governor is the top executive, and he or she has the power uh, at their discretion to pardon anyone from any crime. So anybody who's in a bad place, the governor can pardon, and it's, and it's over. Now, for most of us, the 10-plus million people that live in North Carolina, that's nice to know I guess that power's there, but it doesn't do us any good. I mean, I don't, the governor doesn't know who I am. I don't have his number. I'm not in his DMs. I can't show up at his house and, and hope that he's going to give me some time and listen to me. That's not how it works in the world that, that we work. You know, if you work for a big company, you don't have, you can't just hit up the CEO anytime you want and expect that he or she's going to give you some time or listen to you. You can't just drive up to Washington and go to the White House and expect that President Biden's going to give you any time. Even if you're a sports team, you can't call the owner of your team and tell them they're an idiot. Or you can't ask to talk to the star player. I mean, I guess you could try, but whoever their gatekeeper is, about one second after you get your name out, it's going to hang up on you probably. So in our lives, with people around us, we have much less power than God that are much more finite, much smaller, and all of their power is temporary. They won't be holding that power forever, no matter their position. Even if it's a lifetime position like the Supreme Court, those people die. They won't have it forever, and we don't have access to most of the people in our lives that have power. But God has granted us access to him. And I hope and pray, I'm not always like this, but I hope and pray we would be like little kids who come to their parents. Little kids have access to their parents in a way that's unique. And if you have grown up with parents, you know that. My kids come to me anytime they want. Even if I'm in the middle of something, I'm trying to tell them that. They launch into their ideas and what they want to do. And sometimes I have to be, you know, firm. But they know they can come to me because I love them and we're family. And they know I want what's best for them. And that's what God is. So if we, as earthly fathers, Jesus in Matthew 7 says, if you as an earthly father know how to not give your son a rock when he asks for bread or how to give him a, you know, a serpent, if you know how to give good gifts, how much more do me as a perfect sovereign God know how to give good gifts? So may we go to him, as I mentioned, with joy and enthusiasm and hope. And then lastly, not only does God grant us access to him, but he has the ability to do something. He has the ability to change hearts and circumstances and lives. So, it's important to have access to somebody. I have access to my mom. I can call her pretty much any time I want. In fact, she probably wishes I would call her more. But if I have a problem with my roof, I have access to my mom. I can call her. She'll listen. She'll say she's sorry, honey, that that's going on. My mom doesn't have the expertise or tools to fix my roof. She can't do anything about it. So it's nice that I have access, but I just want somebody to listen while I complain but if I want my roof fixed, I need access to a roofer, to somebody who actually knows what they're doing to fix my roof. So I want us to see that God is the ultimate sovereign authority of the universe. He's the creator of all that we see and all that we don't see. All that we know is going on and the millions of things that we don't know that are going on, God is overseeing 
All of it. And he, he comes and he, he reminds Job of this. And I love some of these passages that talk about, have you seen the storehouses of snow? That just talk about God having this just ultimate authority over the weather. We cannot even accurately predict the weather consistently, much less control it. This is the amount of power that God has. So I'm going to read a lot of Job 38. It's a bit, it's a decent amount, but stay with me. So we're going to start Job 38, verse 4 and 6 through 10. Where were you, this is talking to Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Basically, who created the earth and who's holding it in place, Job? When the morning stars sang together and when the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with its doors when it's burst forth from the womb, when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be. They're saying, who has a power to him in the ocean? God says, that's no problem. Job 22, 25 through 27. Have you entered into the storehouses of snow? Have you seen the storehouses of hail? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where there is no man, on a desert where there is no man? to satisfy the waste and desolate land, to make the ground sprout with grass. This is basically saying, look, I take care of areas you don't even know about. I take care of areas no one even lives in. I, make, I oversee when lightning bugs mate and have other lightning bugs. I oversee everything, things that you can't even imagine that are going on. I'm taking care of those right now. Then he moves on. He says, Job... Uh, 38, 33 through 36. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? It reminds me of in Proverbs. God is the creator of wisdom. He's the creator of of knowledge. Not only does he create things we see, he creates things we don't see. Who can instruct God? No one can instruct him. He has created knowledge and instruction. He's created the thing you would use to try to instruct him. And then verse 41, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to the Lord for help and wander about for lack of food? It's this idea of all of creation pointing to God and needing to be sustained by God. God is this immense sovereign power, and he gives us access to himself, and he can do something about the things that are troubling us, that are burdening our hearts, that are tempting us. He's the ultimate authority and the ultimate provider. He provides us physically food, shelter. More importantly, he provides us emotionally and spiritually. He's the ultimate comforter if you're feeling ashamed. He's the giver of grace. He can change your heart and remind you, no matter how much sin abounds, His grace abounds all the more. He can provide hope if you're feeling hopeless. He's the only one that can move people's hearts and circumstances to a new place. 
He's the only one that can open eyes and change lives. If you're feeling insecure, he can help remind you of your place, that you're an heir. You are a literal inheritance of the kingdom of God for eternity. You're not beyond his help or his hope. So I want to close with a couple questions that that we tend to, I think, not think about um, explicitly, but they, they, they probably govern a lot of our, mo- of our uh, internal dialogue and the things that we think about, kind of the loop that's running through our head. So why are we tempted to believe that God can't work? Why are we tempted to think that he won't hear us or he won't care? Well, if you've been a believer at all, for any amount of time, you've prayed for things that didn't happen. You've prayed for things that you really thought were important and you wanted to happen and they didn't happen or they didn't happen the way you were wanted and you were disappointed. So why? Well, this is where I think it's helpful to remember who God is and who we are. We need to remember that God has this supreme power. He commands the weather. He commands, uh, he commands galaxies we don't even know about or see yet. He commands uh, what happens in our lives. And we are small. We are very small. Think about 7 billion plus people in the world and how many you're connected to or how many people's names you could say. Maybe you could get a few hundred down. We're very small. We need sleep. We need food. Most of us, you know, we have things that we struggle with. Um, Some people, you know, the day they were done with math was one of the best days in their lives. Me, I'm 45. I still struggle with where to put a comma when I'm typing out things. Um, we just have, th- we're finite. We're limited. And we're living under the curse of sin. God is infinite. He is holy. He understands all of what's going to happen in the future. He fully understands what's happened in the past. We can't fully comprehend what's happened in the past because we're so limited. So it should make sense to us that there are going to be times when somebody who is over everything and understands everything about future, present, and past is going to have some better ideas and some better things he's working on than what we're praying about. So it's not that we should be disappointed. He can still use our prayers. The older I get, I feel like the more God uses my prayers sometimes to answer and do miraculous things like he did last week for mercy surgery. Sometimes... At the end of what I'm praying for, I don't want it anymore because God's changed my heart. That was the reason that I needed to go to him and pray. So I don't have the ability to know what's happening all around me, much less in the whole world, not even in my own heart. So we need to understand that sometimes we're going to be out of step with God, and we can't always understand what he's doing, but he's working in ways that are better than we could ever imagine. And then the second thing, why are we tempted to believe, where are you tempted to believe God can't work? For me, it's, it's other people. I'm tempted to think that person would never turn to God. Or I prayed for that person so long, I guess they're hopeless. Why would I think that? If God's whole point of salvation is to come to people that are dead, to breathe life into their bodies, is one dead person any more dead than another dead person? If you're dead, you're dead. So why am I tempted to believe that God can't change somebody's heart? 
because it's sinful. But let us go boldly to God who is infinite and perfectly righteous and pray in faith with confidence that he will bring about his kingdom. And I want to just close with this one concluding statement to hopefully bring it all together. How can you go to God with confidence and boldness? Well, when you know who God is, it's the first thing we looked at, that he made you part of his family, that he can understand everything you bring to him, that he wants to hear you, and he has the power to move and make change, that gives us confidence to go to God boldly. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your faithfulness, that even in preparing for this, even in the middle of writing my sermon, and walking out and yelling at my kids that you are kind, that you are kind to forgive us and you are kind to remind us. I thank you, Jesus, that we, we don't have to depend on ourselves. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to fear that something so bad could happen to us or we could do something so terrible that you could not redeem us. So I pray, Lord, that 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 joy and that affection and that warmth and that love of knowing that, that you've given us life, that you've sealed us, that you can help us in everything that we go through, Lord. I pray that it will push us, push us to shout to you, push us to kneel and plead with you. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be a people of prayer. And I pray even in those moments, Lord, when we don't know what to pray, that we'll, we'll call out to your spirit for help. We thank you. I thank you for these people. I love them. I pray, Lord, that we would, even though we love each other imperfectly, I pray we would sharpen each other, we would encourage each other, we would edify each other. In your name, amen.